Okay. Uh, we're in Acts chapter 18. Uh, Paul is in Corinth and uh, verses 1 through 17. Uh, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, and he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Eustace, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul, one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you or harm you, to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names in your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal, and they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. Poor Sosthenes. First his name, and now he gets beat up. Uh, but Gallio paid no attention to any of this. The word of the Lord. All right, so you remember that Paul and Silas uh, had been in uh, Thessalonica, and things uh, didn't go so well there, at least for Paul. And then they went to Berea, and they said, we have to send you someplace else. And so they sent him by sea along the coast, uh, and he went down to Athens. And while he was there, he was in the Areopagus, and he preached a sermon, and they really didn't want to hear it. And so Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. Now, Corinth is actually the capital city of this Roman province. It's not Athens. Uh, Corinth was uh, a Roman colony uh, right, I guess it was about 40 B.C. Uh, the Romans uh, took it, and there was a big uprising of Greeks in the city against the Romans. And so um, Claudius, wasn't Claudius, but I forget his name anyway, he uh, killed all the men in the city before the women and children. Uh, so that put a damper on what was going on in Corinth. Uh, so there was a population shortage, and a lot of Roman citizens, especially former soldiers, made their way into Corinth uh, to resettle it, and it become a booming metropolis, uh, not because of a lot of population growth, uh, although that's part of it, but because of also where it was situated geographically. Uh, it was right on this little isthmus, and you can see it on the map. Actually, this is, you know, the maps in the back of your Bibles, Paul's missionary journeys. You can actually see this. It's a little isthmus that connects the mainland and the Peloponnesus of Greece. And there was two miles between each of the coasts, uh, which was really convenient because you could sail in from North Africa 
on the eastern side, land in Corinth, they could take the goods, the two miles over land to the, up to the west side, and then they could get those to Italy pretty easily. Uh, so it was a great commercial center. Uh, Aphrodite uh, was their uh, goddess uh, that they worshipped, and there was a huge tent, uh, huge tent, let's say temple, uh, to Aphrodite. And uh, because of Aphrodite being the goddess of love, uh, they had a lot of temple prostitutes. And so under the guise of religion, uh, promiscuity was really prevalent in Corinth. Uh, as one commentator put it, it was a navy town. And uh, in fact, in the ancient world, no offense to the Navy, uh, in fact, in the ancient world, uh, we've found ancient documents that any time things really started to fall apart morally in a city, uh, people would say that the city's been Corinthianized. Uh, so they were famous uh, for uh, their lifestyle. And uh, you can go read 1 Corinthians and find out how that manifested itself even in the life of the church. And while he's there, uh, so Paul leaves Athens, goes down to Corinth, and he finds a Jew named Aquila and his wife Priscilla. Now, uh, these two are actually believers in the Lord Jesus uh, that Paul has found. And not only are they Christians, but they're also tent makers, which was Paul's uh, profession and the way that he uh, made money. And Priscilla uh, and uh, Aquila and Priscilla were in Corinth because the emperor Claudius in 49 AD had thrown all the Jews out. In fact, there's a Roman historian, Suetonius, who uh, this is a quote from his uh, history. He said, Claudius, quote, expelled the Jews because they were continually rioting at the instigation of Crestus. Well, who did he really mean? Christ. Right, so there was a lot of dissension, a lot of infighting uh, amongst the Jewish community, and Claudius just said, get out. All of you, get out. And so there was an exodus out of Rome. Uh, we know that Paul didn't convert uh, Priscilla and Aquila because later on uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, uh, he says who the first converts were, Stephanus. So Priscilla and Aquila heard the gospel in Rome uh, and came to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And now here they are back in Corinth as tent makers. Now that's the trade that Paul grew up with. Uh, his dad was a tent maker, maybe successive generations before him, uh, going before him, uh, but, uh, and that was not unusual. After all, what was Jesus' profession other than Messiah? He was a carpenter. Now, why was he a carpenter? Because his dad was a carpenter, right? His earthly father, Joseph. So that wasn't unusual. And Timothy, I mean, Paul, uh, unlike a lot of the folks who started early on in full-time preaching ministry in the early church, they, uh, he, he kept up his trade. One is that he didn't want to be beholden to anybody for money. Uh, so he didn't want anyone to have any leverage. Now, Timothy and Silas didn't seem to mind leverage, uh, but uh, Paul wanted to avoid it at all costs. And so he's making tents in the city uh, with uh, Aquila and Priscilla, and he begins to go to the synagogue where he, uh, he goes to the synagogue, uh, where are we, uh, in this, reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade the Jews and Greeks. Well, this is Paul's typical pattern of ministry where he goes into the synagogue and begins to preach. It's not that unusual to have a guest rabbi coming in and uh, 
they knowing who he, that he's a rabbi, when he says, hey, I'm a rabbi, what would you preach for us uh, this morning? And so a typical synagogue service would include prayers and then ultimately uh, a sermon. And from that sermon, he began to argue that Jesus was the Christ. And he's preaching here, and he's preaching from what? The Word, right? He's reading from the Old Testament, and then he's declaring to them that Jesus Christ is the promised Messiah. And this wonderful verse, verse 5, that when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was what? Occupied with the Word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. Well, he's occupied with a proclamation of the Word, actual preaching, uh, but not just that, but obviously building relationships with the people there in Corinth. And I would say that this is not actually a particular calling uh, to Paul, uh, but it's a call on all of our lives because we're all called to gospel ministry. Uh, there tends to be a habit in the church that think, well, that job is for preachers, right? People who are ordained, they take care of that. Uh, but in fact, uh, that's not the way it works. That's why Paul says in Ephesians, that the job of the clergy are to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And if you think about it, you actually have a better in into the lives of others that we don't have. Right? I've told you before that wearing this collar, uh, I get a definite reaction uh, from people. And uh, frankly, normally it's not always positive. Uh, and if it is positive, everyone all of a sudden, it's like Jesus is coming, look busy. And everyone just gets on their best behavior. And they will often come up to me and they're going to want to talk about their church or, or, or in, in, uh, how they grew up at thus and such church. Uh, in fact, I was out in front of Continental Bakery and had my collar on and um, was walking out and uh, there was a man, he said, hey, are you an Episcopal minister? And I said, I am. And he said, I'm a Wiscopalian too. <laughs> and I said, well, what do you know of the Lord Jesus Christ? He got in his car and went. Right? He didn't even respond. He looked at me like I was like wait a minute, I thought you were an Episcopal minister. Episcopal ministers don't ask questions like that. Uh, but got in the car uh, and left. It's a whole lot easier to make jokes uh, than it is to take seriously uh, what our relationship is uh, with the Lord Jesus. And so uh, we're all called to a certain type of full-time ministry. It may be like Paul, uh, who made tents in order to keep that ministry going, or it may be like Paul and si I mean Timothy and Silas, who actually dedicated themselves uh, wholly uh, to the work of the gospel going from town to town as itinerant preachers in the same way, except I'm not an itinerant, uh, that we hear uh, the clergy at uh, the Advent. Now, like uh, any other town that Paul was in, what was the response of the folks there in Corinth? Some people became Christians, right? And some prominent people we see, uh, but they opposed and reviled them. They opposed and reviled them. Uh, I was uh, looking up uh, the prayers that the Mishnah requires three times a day for devout Jews, and they've undergone uh, several revisions through the years. Uh, but uh, obviously Christianity uh, had a significant effect on uh, the Jewish population around the Mediterranean. We've already seen that it caused problems in Rome, a lot of infighting that caused Claudius to expel them. Uh, we see the problems here in uh, Corinth, where they go to the tribute. Uh, the, they go to uh, 
the Tribune, and they say, uh, well, we're not going to, um, I'm not going to do anything about it. So, I mean, the proconsul, I'm sorry, the proconsul, I'm not going to do anything about it. You, you deal with it yourselves. Of course, Christianity early on was seen as just a Jewish sect. But the minute, the minute you begin to preach the gospel, uh, there's that separation there, right? Because Christians believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the one that the Old Testament has proclaimed, and that's the message that Paul is preaching. But one of the petitions in the Mishnah that I thought was interesting uh, and very telling, and this was written about 70 A.D., so we're talking about 20-ish years after this incident in Corinth, and this is the petition that is prayed. And for the apostates, let there be no hope, and may the insolent kingdom be quickly uprooted in our days, and may the Nazarenes and the heretics perish quickly, and may they be erased from the book of life, and may they not be inscribed with the righteous, blessed art thou, Lord, who humblest the insolent. That's pretty tough. <laughs> and it's us uh, that are being prayed against uh, in that. So there's obviously some really hard feelings uh, going on here, and they feel like everything is being turned upside down to the point uh, that they begin to pray that Christians' names are blotted out of the book of life. Now, that's not just somebody far away, but for a lot of these people who are becoming Christians, uh, who are praying these prayers? Their neighbors, their moms, their dads, their children, their brothers, their sisters. Uh, and so all of a sudden, there's a complete and total rift in the family. And I'm beginning to see that more and more even in our day and age, not for the same reasons uh, that uh, Paul experienced them. Uh, but when you become a Christian, more often than not, it causes a rift in your family. Uh, it, it's really hard, especially if you have someone very close uh, to you in your family, uh, and you're not able uh, to share in common uh, the Christian faith. And I don't know about you, but in, at least in my family, I find it very hard to even communicate with them. Like, it, it feels like there's something missing in the communication. Uh, and they get very frustrated with me. So um, we were uh, talking about uh, Sunday soccer uh, among some family members. And, they, uh, and I said, well, you know, we, we, we do Sunday soccer, uh, even though I don't like it. Uh, but, you know, we, we go to church. And uh, one of my cousins said, man, you're such a zealot. I'm like, for going to church, right? Uh, for, for going to church and picking church over soccer. Um, it was a very funny. Have you all seen the Babylon Bee yet? It's sort of like the onion for Christians. And it's very funny. And, uh, and one of the headlines recently wrote, parents dumbfounded when their child declares they're not a Christian after years of uh, intermittent attendance at church due to soccer. Uh, well, I mean, it's funny, uh, but there's certainly uh, some truth to that. But at the same time, uh, it's not just about, you know, taking your kids to church. It's actually about what does the gospel look like uh, in your own home? And I don't think that it means you have to sit down with your family at a designated time and say, family, it's time to disciple one another, like call to order. Uh, but in fact, if you have kids, your kids are all different and they're going to receive it in different ways. Uh, but I think that it's just modeling the gospel uh, in and out and talking about the gospel. I think one of the most profound ways that we do this is that when we've wronged somebody, that we actually apologize. Uh, that we actually say, I blew it. Uh, that, that's a powerful statement. I mean, there's nothing more humbling than going up to one of your children and saying, 
I'm sorry. I need your forgiveness. Now, uh, you notice that it's not just modeling. You know, so it's been attributed to St. Francis, preach the gospel and use words when necessary. He never said that. He never said that. Uh, and it's a load of hooey uh, because we know, and we see this in Paul's ministry, how do people hear about Jesus Christ? Through the Word, through the proclamation of the Word, through actually declaring uh, that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so it's, if, if you're one of those people that thinks, well, uh, and the world thinks this too, because we use the word Christian for things like, he's just the most Christian person I've ever met in my life, which means what? They're really nice. But if, as is often said as well, if my life is the only Bible that non-Christians read, they're doomed. Right? They're totally doomed. Uh, and so when someone comes up to me and says, you know, I just feel like the church is full of hypocrites. Uh, amen. Right? That gives you the opportunity to say, yes, but we're hypocrites that are at least self-aware enough to know that we need the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ in our lives. And it's precisely uh, because we're hypocrites that we're in church. And if it weren't for Jesus, I would be blind like you and not know that I was a hypocrite. That's the, the fact of the matter. And so I feel like Paul in Romans 7. So this great preacher who says, the very thing I want to do, I find myself not doing. And the very thing I want to avoid like the plague is the thing that I find myself doing over and over again. O wretched man, who will save me from this body of death? And the answer, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the answer. And that's what he continually goes back to uh, from time uh, forever. Uh, that's just uh, what uh, his, his job is, and that's what we are called to do uh, as well. And so Paul's response to this is like the prophet Nehemiah. He shakes uh, his cloak, uh, which they would have understood that imagery, and he says, blood be on your own heads. Uh, I, am, I am innocent of, of anything that happens to you spiritually from this point on. And what he's doing, actually, is he's quoting from Ezekiel 53, where Ezekiel tells the story of the watchmen who say, there's danger coming, there's an army coming to sack the city, get ready. And what do the people do? Nothing. They just disregard what he's saying. And in the same way, uh, what Paul is saying is being wholly disregarded uh, by a lot of his listeners. And so he says, look, it's your blood on your own head. Well, what should our reaction be uh, to those who oppose and revile us? One of the things that I want to warn us against is an us versus them mentality, that somehow uh, we're a little bit better than uh, non-Christians, uh, because if you understand the nature of grace, what you'll understand uh, is that we're all in the same boat, and that but for the grace of God, you know that story, right? So that, ever heard the saying, but for the grace of God, go I? Uh, do you know what that is? That's from the English Reformation. Uh, John Hooper, who was a great reformer, uh, was watching someone being carted off to be burned at the stake, and he said, but for the grace of, I, uh, but for the grace of God goes John Hooper. And, uh, of course, a year later, John Hooper would be burned uh, at the stake. Uh, but understanding uh, that it is only God's grace that would prevent me um, from going down, uh, not just to the stake, but the way we use it today, but going down a road uh, that maybe we really ought not to be going down. And in the same way, 
what the gospel does is it ought to create a lot of compassion. So even though Paul shakes his cloak and says, blood be on your heads, we keep finding that people continue to become Christians. His ministry doesn't end, uh, but his focus shifts and he sets up uh, uh, a little house church uh, with a Roman citizen, a God-fearer, uh, named uh, Titius Eustace. And, uh, and where is his house? It's next door. Awkward. <laughs> so he set up shop next door, and that's where he has these house church meetings. And along with uh, these other folks who have come over, they got a big convert. And they got uh, up amongst them uh, the ruler of the synagogue, Crispus. Now, this is not the rabbi. This is uh, the chief administrator that makes sure that the walls stay up and everything's saying that if you know Brian Helm here at the Advent, uh, that's him. Uh, and then, uh, of course, Sosthenes uh, would take over for Crispus and uh, he would be uh, beaten in front of the tribunal, uh, the Brian Helm of the synagogue there. Um, I told Brian about this and he didn't laugh. Um, <laughs> So uh, they've got some pretty significant converts uh, coming into uh, the church, and uh, we hear that they are, in verse 9, uh, that they believe and, uh, I'm sorry, in verse 8, they believe and are baptized, and in some cases, entire households. And that would mean uh, Crispus, his wife, his children, and any other family living in the house, as well as servants. So a pretty significant thing. Uh, and lest you think, well, people are just kind of going along with it. Well, that may have been the case, uh, but what we find in the New Testament is that actually God was working in such a way that people were being called to faith, even entire families. Uh, and uh, this is true uh, in my own family. Uh, I was the first Christian uh, in our family, and uh, it was not uh, a, a great... Um, experience being the only Christian in our family, uh, but then uh, by the time somewhere between 7th grade and 12th grade, everybody else in my immediate family became a Christian, right? And, and that is an answer uh, to prayer. Uh, and my prayer almost always was, God, raise up people to show and witness the love of Jesus to my family because I can't do it, right? Because the prophet's not going to have any honor in their hometown. And so one of the hardest groups uh, to evangelize uh, is your own family. But even in the midst of this incredible work uh, that's happening in Corinth, what is Paul's reaction to it? If I were Paul, I'd be feeling pretty good about things. But this is how Paul uh, describes how he felt in Corinth. This is 1 Corinthians 2.3. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith not, might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So how did he feel? He's afraid. He felt weak. He, he wasn't a good preacher. He felt inadequate. He felt ill-equipped to actually uh, continue on in the ministry in spite of the fact that the Lord was working around him. 
But then the Lord speaks to him in a vision, and I wish God would do this to me every once in a while. Uh, do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. So in the midst of the depressing effect that the persecution had on Paul, the Lord speaks to him. So what is Paul actually afraid of? He's not afraid that the work's not going to continue. He's not afraid that people aren't going to become Christians. What is he afraid of? They'll reject him. And that's me. That's me. And so Paul receives this word from the Lord, and the last bit of it is the encouragement. Do not be afraid, but go on preaching. Uh, that's what uh, the Lord Jesus is saying to him. He's not saying, you've been quiet, you need to speak up, but you need to continue to speak up with boldness and do what I've called you to do, for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. And this is the encouraging part. Uh, for I have many in this city who are my people. So God already calling people to salvation, but using Paul as the means to their salvation. Right? Paul says it himself. How will people know unless they have a preacher? Right? The gospel has to be preached. Blessed are the feet of those who bring good news. Do not be silent. Don't stop preaching boldly. Paul's voice is the means ordained by God to make the gospel known because he has many people who have been called to be his sons and daughters there in Corinth. And as a result of that, he stays uh, for a year and a half preaching and teaching amongst them. Well, I've never been a big fan of things like gospel tracts, and, uh, and uh, I, even as a clergyman, find it sometimes very hard uh, to witness to people, even when the door is thrown wide open. Uh, there are times where I actually think, I just want to go home, you know, and, and, and not have to, you know, talk about this, uh, even though the door is thrown wide open, and I would be lying if I didn't admit that a lot of it had to do uh, with the fear of what their reaction would be if I put the gospel of Jesus Christ, the person and work of Jesus, squarely in front of them. Now, I've come to the place in my own life uh, where I realize that I too often worry about the praise of the world and of man than the praise of God. And that I have not been as faithful as God has called me to be in sharing the gospel. And I don't mean turn or burn. I don't mean, uh, I don't mind making people feel uncomfortable. In fact, I rather enjoy that part of it. Uh, but, uh, and I'm not talking about, uh, again, we've talked about this before, but witnessing to people in the context of a real relationship with them. And, and simply putting Jesus Christ out there and letting the conversation go where it needs to go. Uh, I have a family member that would call me every once in a while and say, how many souls have you saved today, Andrew? Not a one. Why? Because Andrew doesn't save souls. Jesus does. And that even here in Birmingham, uh, there are many in this city who are God's people. And God is using you and me to be the means uh, by which they will become sons, of sons and daughters of God through grace and by adoption. And so if you're fearful, uh, if you're worried, uh, join the club. Uh, St. Paul and I welcome you uh, to it. 
but let us encourage each other on uh, and proclaim the very message, the very person that saved your own life and changed it and gave you eyes to see. Amen. Okay. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord.